On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Winters, and today we're in the Sydney Frank Digital Studio at John D. Rockefeller Library at Brown University to speak with Dr. Jim McGrath, the postdoctoral fellow in Digital Public Humanities at Brown University's John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage. Thank you for speaking with us today, Jim. First, can you define the digital humanities and the public humanities as you understand them? Is there a difference between the digital public humanities and those two areas, or is it mainly more a specific subset of one of them, or both of them? Yeah, okay. So digital humanities has a few different definitions. I think that there, I particularly subscribe to the big tent inclusive definition of digital humanities, which is thinking about how digital context, tools, publication platforms, methodologies, and sort of fields of study impacts approaches to humanities learning and, and principles of hum, uh, humanities. It's I, I've heard people talk about how it's kind of answering old questions with new tools. And I think that's part of it. But I also think there's lots of new developments and, and sort of digitally technology specific things that humanities oriented approaches can can help with and, and benefit to. And then digital public humanities and public humanities, those are, I mean, a lot of these terms are terms that are particularly valuable to academics and professionals in and around academic context. And, and sometimes the legibility of them is trickier when you sort of move outside of those contexts. And I think public humanities in particular kind of runs into those sorts of issues head on because I think the public humanities, for me and, and for the, the work that I see at the, the JNBC, the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities, takes on a number of different forms. So it could be working in spaces like museums or libraries or galleries or archives, thinking about how people are engaging with humanities-oriented cultural objects and, and thinking about the value of the humanities in those spaces. But I think also, you know, a lot of the people who do that work uh, in those spaces, and there's other spaces like informal education, you know, traditional classrooms as well, public art, working in particular branches of government, and, and sort of lots of other spaces, commercial and nonprofit-driven spaces. A lot of the people who do work that our students are interested in or people in public humanities or, or people in public humanities are interested in don't necessarily value the term public humanities or necessarily that term doesn't resonate for them. So these are kind of really slippery terms. I do think that one of the distinctions between 
digital public humanities or public humanities and maybe other forms of academic knowledge is the real interest in public-facing work that is consumed by a variety of publics and, and is used and is sort of thinking about forms of knowledge or, or actual, you know, material things being produced that are being used in a variety of different ways, not necessarily just, you know, working towards monographs or, or sort of more writerly driven products, which is not to say that people doing that work aren't interested in those other things, too. I think we just, those terms kind of like signal a real particular interest in that stuff and try to create space for the study of that stuff as the primary object of, of study rather than a kind of secondary interest. So the digital humanities can be very different than some other types of humanities work. Not always, but sometimes. But public humanities is just about the focus that someone's bringing to their work in the end. Well, no, I think the methodologies that people bring to it are very different too, right? So public humanities work is very collaboratively driven, and, it's, and it is often the, the sort of forms of value in, in the professional spaces that, you know, people doing this work inhabit. It doesn't lead to the sort of same, the, the same currency sort of isn't valued either, right? So if you're doing a lot of collaborative work, if you're running around in, in different spaces and you're taking on these different roles, you don't have as much time to maybe produce forms of scholarship that more traditional practitioners do. And, and it's not to say that you should be expected to do that stuff on top of the work um, that you're doing, right? But it's it's more thinking about how that collaborative work is itself, a, you know, forms of intellectual labor. Th these methodologies are coming, you know, from particular forms of thought and um, and lines of inquiry and research on how to get this work done. And yeah, I think that, that that's one of the tricky things about working in a a sort of channel like public humanities, right, is is that you're working in these spaces and, and trying to work with collaborators who, who have these other things that they value, but you're still working within an academic space that values other things as much as it likes to say it doesn't value those things, just given the sort of career opportunities that are made available to people, things like that. So yeah, it's a really tricky, I think like in the time that I've spent at the at Brown doing this work, it's been it has been really interesting to think about how Brown um, and how the American Studies Department in particular, um, which is the home of our Public Humanities Center and the, the Public Humanities MA program, have tried to like create this space and then also navigate all the tensions around creating this space and and the sort of realities of the various professions that people you know move from into public humanities or move out of into to other spaces there. So yeah, I think that. It, no, but it is, I think, different. It can be different work. It can be very similar work. So, for example, someone here who we work with a lot at the Center for Public Humanities, who's in the American Studies Department, Monica Munoz-Martinez, She, her work is very sort of cross-disciplinary and public-facing in, in lots of different ways. She recently had a book come out with Harvard University Press, which is um, looking at the long history of state-sanctioned racial violence on the Texas-Mexico border. And that work, I think... There are public humanities, quote unquote, dimensions to it. Like she's been doing a lot of interesting work in Texas to try and get markers that basically compel the Texas government and local governments to sort of acknowledge their complicity uh, in, in this work. She's also has a digital mapping project and a visualization project um, of the data that she's been gathering and, and the fact that she's gathering data sort of documents that she's really interested in digital humanities methodologies. But like, to be honest, the book that she put out 
with Harvard University Press, like that's the thing that's getting a lot of the attention around this topic, right? So so she can point to all these other things as sort of way other ways in which people can be thinking through and addressing these issues and, and talking about them, right? But but in some cases, the sort of more traditional research has like really important value and and I and I know it's valuable to Monica too so it's so it's tricky to sort of navigate it's not a neat binary right mm-hmm. um in terms of like traditional humanities work and public humanities work the the sort of more interesting work seems to be that messier space that's thinking about the different forms of value inherent in the the sort of forms of knowledge production that that pop up across these different spaces so I'll probably come back to this later but some of the things you've been saying remind me of um, the dichotomy between how work in the humanities is done in the university and how work in the sciences is done in the university. And speaking of that, you're a postdoctoral fellow. Mm -hmm. So what is a postdoctoral fellowship um, and what did it mean to you when you applied for it and now that you've had the position for three years? Yeah. And I'm starting my fourth year. Yeah. Um, Good. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of good. Um, So uh, I can talk about that, too. So, yeah. So I have I was in a Ph.D. program for English at Northeastern University. And while I was a Ph.D. student at Northeastern, one of the projects that I worked on was a digital humanities project, which would sort of arguably be read as a digital public humanities project now, although we didn't call it that, called Our Marathon, the Boston Bombing Digital Archive. So it was it was doing the work of gathering cultural materials, digital materials, or sort of digitizing materials around the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing in their aftermath. Um, this was work that got me and my collaborators into various communities in and around Boston. It had us thinking about archives and archival context for our work. It had us thinking about the creation of a digital project, the maintenance of doing all that work. So I was interested in continuing that work and that kind of work. So when I saw the postdoctoral fellowship open up at Brown and and this idea of digital public humanities, the, a lot of the description of that postdoc and the sort of intentions of it really resonated with um, the kind of work I was interested in doing. So I showed it to my my advisors at Northeastern and they said, yeah, this sounds right up your alley. And then it's also at Brown so that that'll be really productive for your career. And yeah, so postdocs are, I've thought a lot about postdocs. I'm part of a postdoctoral laborers group. So some postdocs are, they're created because there's a clear need for something in uh, an institutional context, whether it's a department or a center or something like that, that isn't being addressed by the current pools of labor. So the postdoc is is a contingent form of labor. It's a way that this space can test out, well, is this actually work that requires staff and requires labor in this more explicit way rather than stuff that other people can do on top of their other work or things like that. So in some postdocs, and and actually this has been more the norm now in in certain uh, sectors, like a postdoc, it leads to more permanent hiring. If, you know, if it, if the decision is made that, you know, yeah, this is actually work that, that we need to value. But there are other postdocs that you have someone come in and work for a year or two years, and then the center or the institution gets somebody else mm-hmm. to do that. So they're kind of swapping people in and out, which is, is a model that I'm not as crazy about. I, I think it can be good. I, it's it's really tricky. I, and I've kind of gone back and forth and thinking about postdocs, like, do we need postdocs or do we need more permanent forms of employment for early career scholars? And I would 
lean more towards that than more postdocs. But yeah, they can be really interesting opportunities for young professionals who are interested in academic institutions to see another institutional space to learn about, you know, how how that functions and what its dysfunctions are and, and sort of other things too. Because I think it it you know, for, for early career professionals, the, the, the variety of contexts that you work in kind of really helps you get a sense of what's normal and what's value, what's more valuable and things like that. But some postdoc timelines, if like a year postdoc is really tricky because it's, you get to a new place and you're applying for the next job and you're trying to sort of make your mark on this place and sort of further your research and make an impact on this new community, but you, you, you know, your foot's already out the door. And I'd even say like a two-year track can be tricky with that too. So I think, you know, for people who are thinking about postdocs, if you're thinking about applying to one, I would really sort of think carefully about what environment you're working into, um, how long you're expected to be in that environment, if there are plans for more permanent hiring explicit, you know, in there, if there's travel funding, because if you're someone who's an early career professional, you, you want to be moving around uh, and, and sort of getting your stuff out there. For people who are in positions to potentially fund postdocs, I would also really think about like, well, what is a postdoc doing in this particular moment in time? And if that work is valued and, and important, how do we ensure that like that particular person has a space to do that work? And, and if they are interested in continuing to do that work, we are encouraging and, and financially supporting that stuff there too. So I think, because I think in some cases, you know, to, to be blunt, a postdoc is a less expensive form of labor for, mm -hmm. for these institutions, right, compared to a tenure track job or something like that. And postdocs are aware of that, right? So it's, so it's not to, to, so I think like that's a thing that you want to be thinking through both from the perspective of, of the person who might be seeking out these jobs, but also what are you doing to kind of improve the the career aspirations of early career professionals? Like if you're in a position to to say like, okay, we can test out this as a postdoc and then make it more permanent, like you should push for that. Um, you shouldn't push for like, okay, this is going to be a revolving door of, of mm -hmm. cheap labor and we can keep getting these new and innovative innovative people and then kind of spitting them out and then moving forward, which is, you know, I think uh, a version of the postdoc that I've seen in other contexts for sure. Yeah. So as, as a postdoc, what does your position actually entail? What sort of work do you do day to day and what parts of it are explicitly part of the postdoc as opposed to your personal research? Yes. Yeah. So the, I mean, and it's funny because on paper, the contract for a postdoc, it just it's very brief, right? Um, but but there are things that have kind of were worked out beforehand. But but the real sort of blunt, crude way of describing my work is, fifty percent of my work is my own research, and fifty percent of my work is work related to the center's interest in digital public humanities. Now mm -hmm. that varies from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. But I you do want to try and make sure that like the 40 hours at the end of the week is kind of falling close to that sort of fifty fifty breakdown. Mm -hmm. In terms of specific stuff, so the work that I do to support the center, I teach graduate level courses once a year, which is a really light teaching load, um, which is nice. I teach a course, which is kind of an introductory course to digital public humanities that's just called Digital Public Humanities. And then I also teach a, a course called Digital Storytelling, which is a little more beyond the kind of explicit academic purviews of digital humanities or public humanities and kind of is meant to open it up to sort of different possibilities of digital storytelling. But there is a lot of overlap, I think, but between those two spaces. But you didn't just, you don't just teach these courses, like you built them from the ground, right? 
Well, yeah. So digital storytelling had been taught before at the Center for Public Humanities. And I think part of the reason... So, so the history of sort of digital projects at the center, the, the, the previous director of the center, Steve Lubar, has long been interested in digital context for public humanities. He has this blog post that's really popular. I think still it's like five, I think it's like five things or 10 things people should care about public humanities. I don't know. It's been a while, but one of them is digital, right? It's like, I think it just says think digital. And then Susan Smoylan, who's the current director, she has been really working a lot with digital humanities context and projects in her work in American studies. And and she offered a sort of very early DHE course here at Brown a while back. But yeah, there was a course in digital storytelling on the books before I taught here. And and that varied by the um, the instructor. I know that there was like one instructor, for example, who was really interested in games. And I'm interested in games, but that's not like a sort of central dimension of the, the course that I teach. And then digital public humanities is a new addition that kind of ca- that came that had to be approved in the sort of usual ways that that stuff needs to be approved, which is always an interesting process. So yeah, there's the teaching. I do independent studies, and I've run several of those here with students who have projects or particular interests, academic interests that would benefit from a more sustained uh, semester-long investigation into those instead of a survey course. I support some of the digital projects that currently exist at the center. So there's a lot, there's a really old digital humanities project called the Monitors Journals Project that we've supported in the past. So I've been roped into um, doing some of that work and 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 ensuring the sort of legacy of that project. We support a project called Road Tour, which is a digital mapping tour-centric service that's offered in conjunction with the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities and the Rhode Island Historical Society. It's um, an app and also a mobile-friendly website that people can tour various parts of Rhode Island with. Um, So I I do some support on that project. And then there are newer things, like we created a digital tour of the Nightingale Brown House, which is the the physical home of the Center for Public Humanities, because we were really interested in kind of thinking about what kind of tools are available to people who want to map interior spaces. So so it was kind of a prototype in that way. It also helps us in some ways address some of the issues of accessibility with the historic house. But I think, you know, there's more work to be done on that front in terms of improving the accessibility of the digital thing too. Yeah, so so those are some of the things. And then supporting mapping violence, which is um, Professor Martinez's project. So some of those projects, there's a real clear kind of directive to say, hey, it'd be great if you could do work on that. And some of them I've been able to to select my degree of involvement as mm-hmm. long as it kind of, you know, I'm, I'm showing that I'm helping with a lot of this stuff. And then for personal research, I've been working on a lot of sort of different contexts. So, so some of the work I was doing when I first got here was writing up some of the work I did on the Our Marathon project and also helping that project get ready for its five-year anniversary. We were migrating stuff into the digital repository at Northeastern. So that was taking up a lot of my time. And then because of the work I do here at Brown, I've, I've been thinking about writing about the context of the tours. I've gotten really interested in digital context for local history. Um, so, so the phrase hyperlocal history has been really interesting to me, uh, you know, in my research and what does it mean to find digital context for really local history and, and what forms do they take? What audiences do they serve? Stuff like that. 
Oh, we also made a podcast <laughs> because the, it made sense for the Public Humanities Center to have a podcast. So that was another thing that we did. We piloted one. We're working on, I'm working on another version of that, which is more of an independent research project than something I'm doing with a student. The first you know, iteration of this podcast project was done with Amelia Golcheski, who was a, a second year MA student in Public Humanities at the time. So yeah, there's a lot. I write about memes. I have a thing uh, coming out about memes soon, going to conferences, stuff like that. So, so the 50-50 balance in that light, I think works well. And I'm able to kind of focus on my stuff while also, you know, staying in the loop for projects that are established and trying to help faculty who are new to digital work or students who are new to digital work, figure out what those contexts are for for their future careers and stuff like that. This line doesn't sound like a very uh, clear line, though. It sounds like your own work and the work at the center kind of move back and forth and yeah, well, I, so I'm, yeah, so because I, and this might be the product of being an early career scholar or having just good mentorship, right? Anytime that I'm doing work for the center, I'm also thinking about how that work impacts my own professional identity outside of the center. So for instance, the the interest in hyperlocal history, I went to a conference a few weeks ago, the Digital Library Federation Conference, and talked about how the various things I was doing on behalf of the center and, and you know, through my own independent research were kind of under this rubric of the hyperlocal history and finding context for that. So I think like that's a thing if you're an early career scholar or professional, you really will want to know what you can talk about, what you can claim ownership for, and if there are sort of barriers to resistance. If someone's telling you you can't claim ownership for something that you've spent a lot of time doing, literally half the time that, you know, I spent working this job, right? Or if somebody is coming up with a, a form of citation that erases your work, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're like working on this project that has a digital representation and your name's nowhere on it, right? Like you need to, you know, ask questions sort of assert your your um, your own value what you're bringing to those spaces and if if you're finding lots of resistance to those spaces I mean you need to get out of those spaces basically is, is the way I think about it like so you mentioned this a little bit already but just to be clear about it what was the motivation for the Center for Public Humanities to create this postdoc yeah, so I think a big part of that was Susan Smoylan's commitment to digital forms of scholarship and, and this idea of digital public humanities, mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that, you know, a center for public humanities and an MA program in public humanities had someone in the building who was thinking a lot about the implications of doing digital work and, and the kind of ubiquity of the digital in a lot of the work we do, because this has even come up. Like I'll have students come in and they'll say, well, I'm not really doing digital stuff, but then we'll start talking about their professional identities and, and where those identities circulate and how they're defining themselves or talking about their scholarship and things like that. Or, you know, relying on sources of information like social media to inform what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know, or even just at the level of, I mean, like the Monica Martinez's project is, you know, an, an example I keep going back to where she really did, she had this research project and then data became an interesting component of that, right? Like what if we started to think about you know, we're trying to to focus on this area of history and and demonstrate the severity of it. So like we're starting to gather data, right? And then what do we do with that data? You know, and, and it's and there are also ways that data and a sort of data oriented approach can depersonalize, right? So mm -hmm. I think she's been really conscious of, you know, thinking of we're we're thinking of this history as points of data, but we're also thinking of the people who are the data points, right? Um, or, or the people whose lives are represented in the data points. So so having somebody on staff who is kind of thinking through a few different contexts for this, I mean, there 
we have a lot of people who do work in museums. So like thinking of there's the representations of exhibits, uh, you know, in online spaces or the uses of social media to motivate patrons and, and get people to sort of share what they're doing and the sort of selfie craze around museum spaces or public art spaces, but also like digital exhibits and interfaces and things like that. So I think this particular position kind of covered a lot of these different spaces. The American Studies Department at Brown didn't have someone who was explicitly doing digital work. Brown does have a history of supporting digital humanities work. The Center for Digital Scholarship at the Brown University Library, you know, has is, is been a sort of real resource for people doing this work on campus. But I think Susan's sense that, you know, having someone who is really explicitly focused on digital public humanities rather than forms of digital humanities that could circulate easily at academic conferences for digital humanists or even non-digital humanists, you know, but more thinking of these sort of other uh, forms of engagement or forms of uh, creation was what she was looking for, sort of thinking about. What is it like to be a postdoc as opposed to something else on a given day? Do you feel essentially different from a professor or another faculty member? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so. Like the the sort of non-permanence of the postdoc is a thing that you think about because especially the further you go into a postdoc while well, you're applying for, for other jobs. So like after we have this conversation, I have a couple of job applications that I'm sort of finalizing and putting together. I think like how you feel about your position does depend on the environment you're in, right? I mean, like there are in some cases, like I found the American Studies faculty here to be great in terms of you're someone that we can bring in to talk to our classes about digital context for their work. You're someone that I can come and talk to about my own research projects and like how to get started with them and things like that. So it kind of feels more like a kind of in-house consulting role in those spaces. But I think like, especially when I'm in a classroom environment or like a workshop environment or something like that, it does feel like more like a faculty member, right? Like you're someone who, and, and so the perceptions you know, that, that you have by other faculty members or by other, or by the students or by office staff and things like that, like all of that kind of varies and, and depends. But yeah, I think that can be a tricky thing to, to figure out. What sort of jobs are you applying for in general? Like, do you want to do the tenure track faculty position? Yeah. So I'm thinking more about positions that where I'm, I have space to do my own research, but I'm doing more collaborative work and, and, you know, get, and also getting to help shape the vision for digital scholarship in institutional spaces, right? So some of that work is supported in institutional libraries. Some of it is not, but so, so that's been interesting. Some of the more interesting job descriptions that I've seen have either explicit ties or, or strong affiliations with libraries. And as someone with a PhD in English, Sometimes you'll see degrees, I mean, you'll see job descriptions where it'll say, you know, library degree required. Other cases, you'll see advanced degree strongly preferred and things like that. So so that's been like seeing how legible I am in those spaces, like depending on, you know, when I've heard back from, from interviews or when I've gone on campus visits and things like that has been interesting to and and I think like there is, I mean, I went to the Digital Library Federation conference um, for the first time this year in part to kind of like see what it's like to sort of share information in those spaces. I've been to library conferences before, but but this is the sort of big digital one, right? To get a sense of, of what the sort of current conversations or investments are, what the priorities are and how 
knowledge gets shared. I have been in some context or situations where like my lack of a library degree has been a, a thing, you know, it's been an elephant in the room or, or something that's been explicitly talked about conversely, right? Like you, you can be in spaces where the fact that you have a PhD is getting really strongly privileged over other forms of experience and knowledge. So, mm. so you get a sense of, of where that is. I think Altac is a real sort of trendy has been a real sort of trendy phrase and it's been something that you know people who are helping with the professional development of early career scholars or or graduate students and things like that have been thinking a lot about like where do people land if they don't want to go in the traditional career path for now i've been thinking about just because so much of my experience has been in academic context i've been looking primarily at academic contexts but there are you know positions in educational technology that are you know not explicitly tied to a particular institution that could be interesting i just i mean i do enjoy teaching and i do enjoy collaborative work so so i think like those spaces have been of interest to me it has been i think good to see people who work in spaces that are sort of more collaborative or thinking about digital scholarship think about people who might not be coming out of the library track and and what experiences they bring so yeah it's i think like it's been good to see the people who have been writing job descriptions, the people who are trying to populate these spaces with interesting people who can support this kind of work, really thinking about like, well, how important is this particular degree? Or is it more important to have like these sorts of qualifications or this, these sorts of experiences? But yeah, I think that's that's always tricky. You know, and I'm, I've, I've looked at sort of tenure track stuff, but I'm, I'm in a weird position now where I have a degree in English, but a lot of the work I've been doing has been more history or American studies, right? So that's like going back in and applying to positions that are in those formal channels. That's been kind of interesting to kind of then like reshape your, or like, or you're like, oh, well, maybe I don't want to go back to doing this yeah. sort of stuff. Maybe I like what I'm doing, you know, in, in these other spaces. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's something that everybody who's, you know, I may be working in public humanities, working in digital humanities, and then definitely working in digital public humanities is kind of trying to figure out and navigate. So what are your thoughts on teaching public humanities and digital public humanities? In this case, I'm kind of thinking of it in terms of library and information science, which for a long time was something you just learned on the job, and now you need an advanced degree in almost all cases. Do you think public humanities in particular is moving that way? That's a good question in terms of the, the last bit do I think public humanities is moving that way? I feel like digital humanities has moved more that way in that there are kind of these strongholds of digital humanities that have established themselves. Northeastern, Stanford, uh, University of Virginia, George Mason University, Roy Rosenweig Center for History and New Media has been there, where I think like there is a clear, like there are spaces where digital humanities work has kind of been there's like a professional track. There are people really thinking about the the perceptions of those institutional spaces. But and then you also have these other spaces that are the more traditional, like spaces like Brown, right? Where they're like, well, yeah, we're interested in this stuff too, and we have the cachet of of a Harvard or a Brown or a whatever to 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 sort of imprint on people who get degrees and 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 do work in these sort of fields. It had I mean it can be a little tricky when you see the and I wonder if public humanities will become like this. I haven't seen it as much. Sometimes you'll see the job description where it's like X, Y, and then the Z is digital humanities. And that digital humanities could be 
like somebody has a blog or a Twitter account, right? And I, I mean, and I've talked to people who have applied for these jobs and have not really had strong bearings in digital humanities, but but hit the other two check boxes, right? But and could also perform a kind of of digital humanities work that was legible to to other people and. And I mean, that's interesting because like the way I described that, right, was very condescending right? in terms of like, oh, well, they don't really they don't really do digital humanities work. But I think, yeah, it does. It's interesting to see the sort of reception of this work in spaces like that. And and so public humanities, I don't yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to say I think I feel like we think a lot about where our students go professionally but a lot of our students don't go on to PhDs necessarily explicitly. A lot of them want to do other kinds of work and and you know part of the reason we attract the the pools of students that we get is because we want to encourage that work, right? We don't want them to all come in and then we say, "Okay, now you have to write traditional papers and, you know, you have to be going to these three conferences and 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 doing stuff like that." Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure lots of other people can uh, have thoughts on like where the public humanities degree fits into the fits into that work. The teaching question is really interesting cuz I think part of the challenge of teaching digital public humanities is like so that's the one course a year where like that stuff gets talked explicitly about there are other courses that have digital points of emphasis in them but so you're doing a kind of survey of sorts out of necessity but you also want to do i mean our program is really interested in the experiential right so you want to give people space to to try out particular tools or work with community partners and things like that so the second iteration of digital public humanities that I did in the fall of 2017 was really trying to think about, okay, I I don't want to turn, or I don't want to assume that this class is just going to turn into a bunch of little Jim McGraths, right, who go on to get PhDs, you know, in, in more traditional humanities fields and then, like, get really invested in a field called digital humanities, I want them to be thinking about how methodologies, tools, or perspectives from this field of digital humanities will impact their work and where it already intersects with public humanities and things like that. So we did a partnership with the Providence Public Library where we, and part of the reason that I liked doing that partnership where we we came up with speculative or proposed ideas for digital context for some of their recently acquired special collections was I could talk about some of the digital stuff and the Providence Public Library Special Collection certainly could too, but they, the students had got really clear, specific experience on a particular professional channel and space that is relevant to, to what they do, right? And it's not to say that they're all going to become librarians, but they get a perspective on like what it means to work in a public library, to work in a special collections library, to be thinking about digital context for material objects that are in collections, right? So there are lots of different like learning goals from that collaborative space. And then there are also, one of the expectations that I had for that class was there are lots of digital projects. There are digital projects courses or digital humanities courses where the, the model is, okay, in 14 weeks, we're all going to come out with this one public-facing digital thing, or you're all going to have your own smaller digital things that you're mm-hmm. going to share with the world. And I think that pace is too fast, to be honest, like, and I, so, and especially if it's an initial survey course. So, and I might change my perspective on that. I mean, I, I get really interested in sort of speculative work or, or, or smaller scale projects that might be public facing, but aren't 
you know, I think one of the, the tricky things is like expecting that students will produce the same kind of work that a multi-year grant funded project that's been heavily invested in by like lots of collaborators and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the models of labor just don't line up um, sort of neatly. So so what do you do in the classroom, right? So So I think giving them a space to propose things that might be of interest to people accessing the stuff in digital spaces. And then also to, to not just propose that stuff in a kind of hypothetical situation, but actually go to the Providence Public Library mm -hmm. and pitch these ideas to people who work on these materials. That seemed really beneficial to do. And some of the proposals that these students came up with got used by grants, you know, that the Providence Public Library had. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like they handed them a, you know, a traditional paper and said, you know, enjoy reading this, right? It was more... <laughs> Oh wow! Like some of the points you're raising, like we can move into grant literature. So, so I think like doing that kind of experiential teaching is really tricky because you know you can have like experiential and, and sort of scare quotes, and it's just like you have people doing group work for for an hour or something. And is that really experiential? Like getting them exposed to you know different professional spaces and and professionals uh, and and how they do work and why they do the work that they do and what they have time for and what they don't. All that stuff seems like really important to bring into the classroom. And then the classroom also becomes a sort of hopefully uh, a sort of productive and encouraging space where people who might be skeptical about stuff or still learning about stuff can kind of talk through you know, some of the readings that they're doing in this field and things like that. So there are some, you know, traditional mechanisms of the classroom that, that pop up in these courses, too. So what is it like doing public humanities at a university? And what are the pros and cons of the ivory tower in this situation? <laughs> yeah, so, so my relationship with, like, academic institutions and, and prestige and things like that is very sort of contentious. Like I wasn't raised to be an academic. I wasn't raised by academic parents and things like that kind of was a bad undergraduate student, which I talk a lot about, like, and kind of got more into it in, in grad school. So working through that can be interesting sometimes. Yeah. I think like one of the things that I like about working in public humanities is that like, I can work with partners like the Providence Public Library Special Elections, right? And I was just there last week and I was like, we just, it was kind of a working lunch where I was checking in with them about some of the stuff I was doing and they were telling me about some of the stuff they were doing. And, you know, working with students who are really doing a sort of wide range of different things that in some, sometimes you don't, like in my head, I don't explicitly align with public humanities, but then are quickly convinced that like this is public humanities. And I think we, our students, like we try to support kind of more speculative experimental work. So like they're currently, we have a tiny exhibits program happening in our, in the center for public humanities where they just have one shelf basically to, to run these really short exhibits and there's been lots of amazing stuff already coming out of that. So like seeing and, and talking with all these different people has been, you know, really good and interesting. I think like, but one of the things that it's, I don't know if it's explicitly a con, but it's something that I think people doing this work are thinking about or should be thinking about more is, right, like what happens when you pull this kind of labor or these kinds of investments back into the academic space and context and, and you and you benefit from it and you assign value to it uh, in, in certain ways. So one of the things that I'm really invested in is doing 
work with community partnerships, right? And sort of really thinking about like what local communities need and as it relates to interest in their local history and then sort of digital context for that local history, right? In order to do that, you need to get off campus, right? And you need to, and then you need to also think about like how your, I mean, in the context of digital humanities, right? Like, like having a really accurate data set of like the, the people who lived in a particular neighborhood over a long period of time could be really fascinating and interesting to work with in like one particular context, but like, how does that benefit that particular community and, and how in some ways might that potentially put some people in that community at risk, mm -hmm. right? So like we've, we have a lot of students who are interested in social media, right? And, and the conversations happening on social media, but, you know, getting them to think of the ethical dimensions of working with people's lived experiences, ongoing documentation of, of what they're doing has been something to think about. Like not assuming that you can just hit a button, get all that stuff, spit it out into your own work, and then just like walk away, right? So, so yeah, in the context of public humanities and like community work, right? Like we we try to think about like how are we preserving records and and or how are we like creating new opportunities for engagement with material culture, right? In in digital contexts, um, or or creating you know new voices to be brought into these spaces to hear from them to to have them interact with other voices, but you know what happens when we privilege the academic forms of value, you know, too much, right? Mm -hmm. and, too, and and I think it can be really tricky as an early career person to sort of feel the weight of that while also looking for more permanent employment. Right. So, so I think like there's, yeah. And that's, there's like not a neat answer for that. That's just more a com an observation on like how that, that feeling is sort of present and is, you know, it's not something you want to necessarily like turn off, right? Like you want to be thinking about like, what are the implications of what, I, you know, saying I'm invested in public humanities and, and what does that look like and who does that impact? And, you know, what kind of battles are you sort of creating for yourself and what, what sort of areas of interest sort of materialize there? What, um, you know, authority or experience do you have to do certain work and what stuff that you kind of need to seed the floor or you need to find other collaborators and stuff like that. Do you have any advice for students currently in graduate school for the humanities? And this is whether they're getting towards the end of their degree or just starting it. Yeah, I guess like the two takeaways are like, like writing and working on stuff and thinking of that work as iterative rather than sort of locking you into like one particular thing for the rest of your life is a good thing to to think about. For me, it took me a, a while to get comfortable treating kind of traditional forms of academic labor. So like in a graduate program, like the, the term paper or the conference paper or the journal article, um, not as like the encapsulation of like all my knowledge or like the most perfect refined thing that was going to like change the world in that, you know, and, 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 you know, going into writing with that perspective can lead to writer's block and like unhappiness and lots of other things. Right. So I think like there's, um, if you are in a, in a space where writing academic writing in some forms is valued um like think about how to fit that into your work days and and think about how to i don't know come up with habits that that help you enjoy that work uh and if you don't enjoy that work you know think about other things to do <laughs> you know, not necessarily things to do outside of that um career track but like other things in the wider field of academia that maybe don't value academic writing as much. Like I've come to enjoy writing more in recent years, but I like hated it as a graduate student and feel like the amount of time I had as a graduate student that I could devote to writing could have been spent better, <laughs> you know, like doing, uh, doing some of that stuff. I think there's also, 
you know, when I advise my current students at Brown, one thing that I really encourage or the, you know, encourage with an asterisk is getting out into conferences and, and talking to people. The asterisk is there because conferences are expensive. Um, and I don't want to just say like, oh yeah, you should go to everything. And cause you shouldn't go to everything. You should, you should, you know, think about like, what are the spaces that people whose work I admire like where are they circulating stuff and what might be good to go to to and and how can I participate in those spaces too so the the annual digital humanities uh, international conference has a poster session which is often a good opening base for for early career scholars to to do some work in other you know well-regarded conferences at least in some of the fields I do, they, they tend to have some sort of framework to encourage, like they have a first timers dinner or they have um, space on the schedule where people can share stuff in a, a more informal or quick way. So like, I don't know, just, I think for me, I was in a privileged position working at Northeastern because of its emergence in digital humanities. And then also because I was working on a project that had some attention to it because of the severity of the um, the subject matter that it was focusing on and, and the public facing dimensions of it where I was, you know, in spaces where I had stuff to talk about and, and people were interested in, in uh, talking to me. But I think I, I act as kind of a cheerleader for our students to be like, hey, like you should share the stuff in this space. And and that's and and sharing it in particular spaces that have value, like for any early career person, particularly students getting a sense of how your discipline values certain forms of knowledge, certain sites of publication, certain degrees, certain whatever, like that's, I think, just really useful to know. And then also how do you, like what your place is within those spaces and then like how, how do you navigate those spaces? And, and learning by doing, I think, is really useful and, and important to, to do there. I wouldn't necessarily like recommend that people like I don't know, join Twitter and, and start offering hot takes every 10 minutes or like, you know, adding, like leading people in the field every like day or so. But I mean, I think like social media for, for digital um, scholarship has been really important to like my career. And, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's currently happening still on Twitter. So like, those are spaces that are worth inhabiting, but you know, again, like even that you learn by doing right. Like, so like when I first started using Twitter as a digital humanities person, I was super annoying. And then like, I learned how to become less annoying like over, over time. I'm annoying in different ways now, you know, but yeah, I don't know. I think like there's lots of like opportunities for self-reflection that is like productive forms of self-reflection. Like, like I was at Northeastern a couple of weeks ago and I asked um, some current students there, like, who are the five people in your field that you would like to be in five to 10 years. And like some people struggled with that answer, right? So that's a signal to like, think about like, oh, like who, who are the people that I'm sort of setting up as people that I want to emulate? Maybe they're not in your field. Maybe they're doing other stuff. And if they're doing other stuff, then how does your field relate to, to what they're doing? I, you know, I, I don't know. I think like there, there are ways to demystify the the more terrible components of the work that we do and and a lot of that happens at the level of like looking at the people who are doing it and talking to them and you know reaching out to them or presenting your work in places where they also present their work i mean it can be really frustrating like one of the more frustrating experiences that i had as a graduate student was i worked on my prospectus so like the thing before my dissertation that said this is what i was going to write about and it took like a year and a half for various reasons and then the second it was done my advisor at the time was not the advisor that i ended up with said something like oh well like now you can just throw this away 
and just focus, you know, cause you're always going to like throw away the prospectus. You're, you're, you know, your dissertation is always going to be something totally different. And I was like, well, I spent a year and a half. Like <laughs> I was like hanging over my head for a year and a half and I was like working on it and revising it and, and stuff like that. So like there are ways like we, we can like do work and like devote our energy to things that like then get like put in a drawer, you know, or like don't circulate. So I've been, as I said, I've been getting more interested in writing and, and getting more excited about writing. But like one of the things that I've been finding is like, writing and revising and pitching and 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 editing like that all that stuff takes time so like really thinking about like what sites do you want like your stuff to circulate in are people reading stuff in those spaces is, you know is it enough to have a cv line that says you have a publication in in some journal or or some other you know thing um so like all the experiences i've had writing stuff in the last few years and, and adding to that cv have been beneficial but it's also like it's been a learning experience to think about like oh i spent a lot of time doing this thing and this thing is an open access right so like what does that mean right um and and so some people are arriving at those decisions sooner than like people like me but i think that's where people can access the stuff you're doing and what control you have over like sharing that stuff is is really important too um as early sort of junior scholars so that was like a really long-winded set of advice yeah to get a little bit meta here can you talk about the place of podcasting in digital public humanities especially as compared to just the digital humanities well yeah i mean so one thing that's interesting about doing digital humanities work in a public humanities context or doing this thing called digital public humanities right is that there are certain forms of products in digital humanities without the public, although some of them claim to be public facing and in fact are, where it's like people are really interested in large data sets or, or you know, collections as data. Like how do, what does it mean to sort of rethink this and make data sets more publicly available or visualizations or interactivity, like mapping projects, you know, working with large sets of things, asking as, as um, Ryan Cordell and Northeastern would say, like asking kind of traditional humanities questions, but with like newer tools and newer sets of things. Like we're able to, to, to sort of do, things or we're able to be more precise with our claims about things because of some of the digital affordances we have. But then there are other, you know, contexts for digital work that I think get overlooked um, or maybe the the value is different in sort of more some of those humanity spaces. So podcasts, yeah, I think podcasts can be really interesting in lots of different ways. Like we thought of our podcast, which was very similar to in, in sort of the conception to to this podcast, as it partially an opportunity for the center to say, well, what would a podcast look like, sound like, what, what kind of work would go into it, but also as a networking tool to be like, hey, like, we'll create this space. It'll be for our students to talk with practitioners that they value. It'll get them on their radar. People like to be asked to be on podcasts, you know, and, and they'll have a conversation and maybe that'll lead to, to something interesting. And they'll also get interesting perspectives on how these people define their work, whether they're invested in public humanities or, or sort of other things there too. So, so like there's a lot you can do with something where the, I don't know, the digital tools or the work or the labor seems very different from like, for lack of a better word, like a more traditional digital humanities project or a digital humanities project that's privileged in other ways or requires grants and things like that. Mm -hmm. So po yeah, podcasts have been interesting. The tour has been really interesting for me to think about as like, like augmented reality and ways in which, 
you know, virtual reality or augmented reality are, are things that people hear and say, oh, well, there's probably a lot of grant money that would need to go into that, right? But but when we think about public humanities context, we're often thinking of people who are really invested in their constituents and their patrons and their audiences and their publics, but don't have a lot of monetary resources or even the time to sort of construct these things. So what are they coming up with? How, what are they, how are they thinking about the digital as it impacts the sort of lived experiences of the people that they're, they're trying to serve? And how might that be different from sitting down at a laptop and working with this large visualization or like having access to this, you know, archive of, of sort of materials that, that doesn't sort of give you a clear sense of like what you can do with that stuff or how you can reuse that stuff. And mm-hmm. I, and I think like digital humanities definitely does have a, a problem in some contexts with like, well, we'll just put it all on the web and we have this really amazing visualization that sets out to do X, Y, and Z, but then like, somebody only spends like 30 seconds looking at it because they have no idea what to do with it. Or what are the sort of occasions for making arguments or, or like, oh yeah, we've got a million things in the digital public library of, of America, but like who's using those things and how are they using them? So, which is why it's interesting to see p- people like them, um, like the DPLA has an annual like GIF making contest, right? So it's like, well, no, there are p- playful and creative things you can do with this stuff too. We're not just saying you have to sort of sit there and, and you know, look through your monocle at them and be like, oh yes, I'm appreciating culture or something. So yeah, I don't know. I think it, it can be, it can be interesting to think about how to approach digital projects or tools or even just like ways to like think about the the impact that digital um, technologies have had on day-to-day lives and how to talk about those things um, has been been really interesting like public libraries offer workshops on how to use a smartphone and like that's really important to certain audiences like is that do i want to spend the rest of my life running those workshops probably not right but but i think they're important things to to sort of keep in mind in the sort of larger landscape of public humanities if we're if we're making these bold claims about serving these various publics and then we give them things that that clearly privilege i don't know certain interfaces and user experiences that not everybody has ready access to or prior knowledge of so i don't know yeah i think like and a podcast is something that like you put it in your ears and you listen to it or you put it on your commute, you know, like, and, yeah. and there are interesting things you can do with that form. And yeah, I think it's like a valued space to, to think through some of this stuff to work with. Like, so the thing that we're developing for the spring is really thinking about local history and local archives and, and different people who are interested in local history and having their voices be part of it rather than an academic sort of coming in and, and saying like, Oh yeah, here's my take on, on how how important this stuff is so but that's that takes a lot of work and we're we're working on that now so something that you mentioned um remind me and i've heard this from both people who do digital humanities and people who do public humanities mm-hmm. do you think at some point it, there those two modifiers are just going to go away and it's just going to be humanities and humanities is always going to have some knowledge or interaction with what we're now calling new media and also like always have some knowledge of its interaction with people outside of academia? I don't know if the modifiers will go away. I think that the support for people doing work with those particular modifiers might change. Um, and the kinds of jobs that emphasize, um, you know, more explicitly digital stuff will, will maybe change. I mean, like I'm cause like, it does seem like there have been, 
well-intentioned efforts to be like, well, we need to support digital stuff. So we'll build a center. But like, what happens if you put a lot of resources into building a digital center and staffing it and, you know, five or 10 years down the road, uh, you know, there's a new set of priorities for that institution or they're realizing that like we're paying X amount of money and this is the kind of use that these things are getting. So like all that stuff I think is going to impact the future of, of this stuff. I think with public humanities, it's arguably the the sort of money and labor and time required to do that stuff are like underestimated right now. Like I don't think we're there I don't think we're quite there yet to dismiss the public, <laughs> you know, before we create space for for people um doing this work or or, you know, I mean like it might be interesting to think about like who's who's doing this work in other names outside of academic context and what would it take to bring those people into more explicitly academic context? Do they want to be connected there? But yeah, a lot of it, I think, well, and I, I mean, there's a bigger question of like, what are universities going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years? I mean, like we're already like at, you know, high percentages of adjunct labor, contingent labor already. So yeah, I think like those are the bigger (laughs) issues. And then like where, so so this center model has been interesting because like a center could like serve a variety of majors, right? Um uh in a humanities framework or a social sciences framework or or traverse them or both. Um yeah, within particular departments that might be interesting to think about like what kind of courses get offered 5 10 years from now. Like like a lot of English departments are offering digital humanities courses. Like will will that be consistent? is that already limiting in certain ways because there might be people doing other work, you know, that, that doesn't sort of neatly uh, align with, um, with that sort of stuff. Cause it privileges literary studies or, or something. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I feel like the, I don't think the modifiers will go away, but I think the, the people who have those modifiers will probably change and, hopefully you know increase in some numbers and like the public humanities front but i mean i don't know maybe there are other terms that that signal this kind of work in in more productive or interesting ways i'm not yeah i'm not sure like maybe like saying someone's a curator and assuming that that also includes digital curation i don't think that's true right now with certain jobs i think maybe in other contexts it is but i feel like even like museums are people who are explicitly connected to like digital stuff. I mean, one of the the tricky things in public humanities with digital that we've heard some of our students talk about is like sometimes in the context of a museum, the digital stuff is just social media outreach, right? So it's not like doing interface design on uh, touch screens or um, things like that. Some of that stuff gets outsourced or some of it gets done, you know, through, through other means. So, so yeah, I think that can get tricky. And I think like, social media, like work that explicitly involves social media will probably change in certain ways too, hopefully for the better. I don't know. Social media is a dark place to be right now. So yeah. And, and ha- now that more people are thinking more about like, you know, okay, there's engagement happening in these spaces, but what, what is the value of that engagement? And then like, what do the metrics actually tell us? And then like, how is this improving our missions and stuff like that? All that stuff is worth thinking through. I think you've answered all of my questions for today. So thank you so much for coming and talking. Well, I thank you so much for speaking with <laughs> yeah. us today, Jim. Thanks for thanks for coming here. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek, and this episode has been produced by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Catherine Winters is our editor, and Mark Seta is our sound designer.